Section 30 of Hinduism and Buddhism and Historical Sketch, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Shashank Jakmola. Hinduism and Buddhism and Historical Sketch, Volume 1 by Charles Eliot. Vedic Deities and Sacrifices. Part 1. Our knowledge of early Indian religion is derived almost entirely from literature. After the rise of Buddhism, this is supplemented to some extent by buildings, statues and inscriptions, but unlike Egypt and Babylonia, pre-Buddhist India has yielded no temples, images or other religious antiquities, nor is it probable that such will be discovered. Certainly the material for study is not scanty. The theological literature of India is enormous. The difficulty is to grasp it and select what is important. The inquirer is confronted with a series of encyclopedic works of great bulk and considerable antiquity, treating of every aspect of religion which interested the Brahmins. But he continually feels the want of independent testimony to check their statements. They set forth the views of their authors, but whether those views met with general acceptance outside the Brahmanic caste and influenced Indian life as a whole, or whether classes, such as the military caste, or regions, such as Western India and Dravidian India, had different views, it is often hard to say. Even more serious is the difficulty of chronology which affects secular as well as religious literature. The feats of Hindus in the matter of computing time show in the most extravagant form the peculiarities of their mental temperament, for while in their cosmogonies eons whose length the mind can hardly grasp are tabulated with the names of their superhuman rulers, there are few dates in the pre-Muhammadan history which can be determined from purely Indian sources. Footnote 139. The principal one is the date of Ashoka deducible from an inscription in which he names contemporary Seleucid monarchs. End footnote. The fragments of obscure Greek writers and the notes of a travelling Chinaman furnish more trustworthy data about important epochs in the history of the Hindus than the whole of the gigantic literature in which there has been found no mention of Alexander's invasion and only scattered allusions to the conquest of the Shakas, Kushans and Hunas. We can hardly imagine doubt as to the century in which Shakespeare or Virgil lived, yet when I first studied Sanskrit, the greatest of Indian dramatists, Kalidasa, was supposed to have lived about 50 BC. His date is not yet fixed with unanimity, but it is now generally placed in the 5th or 6th century AD. This chronological chaos naturally affects the value of literature as a record of the development of thought. We are in danger of moving in a vicious circle, of assigning ideas to an epoch because they occur in a certain book while at the same time we fix the date of the book in virtue of the ideas which it contains. Still, we may feel some security as to the sequence, if not the exact dates, of the great divisions in Indian religious literature such as the period of the Vedic hymns, the period of Brahmanas, the rise of Buddhism, the composition of the two great epics and the Purans. If we follow the opinion of most authorities and accept the picture of Indian life and thought contained in the Pali Tripitaka as in the main historical 
it seems to follow that both the ritual system of the Brahmanas and the philosophic speculations of the Upanishads were in existence by 500 BC and sufficiently developed to impress the public mind with a sense of their futility. Footnote 140 Example given, a learned Brahman is often described in the Sutta Pitak as a repeater of the sacred words, knowing the mystic verses by heart, one who had mastered the three Vedas with the indices, the ritual, the phonology, the exegesis and the legends as a fifth. End footnote some interval of mental growth seems to separate the Upanishads from the Brahmanas and a more decided interval separates the Brahmanas from the earlier hymns of the Rig Veda, if not from the compilation of the whole collection. Footnote 141. There had been time for misunderstandings to arise. Thus the Satapatha Brahmana sees in the well-known verse, Who is the God to whom we shall offer our sacrifices, an address to a deity named Ka. Sanskrit for who, and it would seem that an old word, uloka, has been separated in several passages into two words, you, a meaningless particle, and loka. End footnote. We may hence say that the older Upanishads and Brahmanas must have been composed between 800 and 500 BC and the hymns of the Rig Veda hardly later than 1000 BC. Many authorities think the earlier hymns must date from 2000 rather than 1000 BC, but the resemblance of the Rig Veda to the Zoroastrian Gathas, which are generally regarded as considerably later than 1000 BC, is plain and it will be strange if the two collections prove to be separated by an interval of many centuries. But the stage of social and religious culture indicated in the Vedic hymns may have begun long before they were composed and rites and deities common to Indians and Iranians existed before the reforms of Zoroaster. Footnote 142 Recent scholars are disposed to fix the appearance of Zoroaster between the middle of the 7th century and the earlier half of the 6th century BC. But this date offers many difficulties. It makes it hard to explain the resemblance between the Gathas and the Rig Veda and how is it that respectable classical authorities of the 4th century BC quoted by Pliny attribute a high antiquity to Zoroaster. End footnote. It may seem that everything is uncertain in this literature without dates or authors and that the growth of religion in India cannot be scientifically studied. The difficulties are indeed considerable, but they are materially reduced by the veneration in which the ancient scriptures were held, and by the retentiveness of memory and devotion to grammar, if not to history, which have characterized the Brahmans for at least twenty-five centuries. The authenticity of certain Vedic texts is guaranteed not only by the quotations found in later works, but by treatises on phonetics, grammar and versification as well as by indices which give the number of words in every book, chapter and verse. We may be sure that we possess not perhaps the exact words of the Vedic poets, but what were believed about 600 BC to be their exact words and there is no reason to doubt that this is a substantially correct version of the hymns as recited several centuries earlier. Footnote 143 this applies chiefly to the three Samhitas, or collection of hymns and prayers. On the other hand, there was no feeling against the composition of new Upanishads or the interpolation and amplification of the epics. End footnote. 
In drawing any deductions from the hymns of the Rig Veda, it must be remembered that it is the manual of the Hotri priests. Footnote 144 The Hotri recites prayers while other priests perform the act of sacrifice, but there are several poems in the Rig Veda for which even Indian ingenuity has not been able to find a liturgical use. End footnote this does not affect the age or character of the single pieces they may have been composed at very different dates and they are not arranged in the order in which the priest recites them but the liturgical character of the compilation does somewhat qualify its title to give a complete picture of religion one could not throw doubt on a ceremony of the church still less on a popular custom because it was not mentioned in the missal and we cannot assume that ideas or usages not mentioned in the rig veda did not exist at the time when it was composed we have no other sanskrit writings contemporary with the older parts of the rig veda but the roots of epic poetry stretch far back and ballads may be as old as hymns though they neither sought nor obtained the official sanction of the priesthood side by side with vedic tradition unrecorded epic tradition built up the figures of shiva rama and krishna which astonish us by their sudden appearance in later literature only because their earlier phases have not been preserved the vedic hymns were probably collected and arranged between thousand and five hundred b c at that period rites and ceremonies multiplied and absorbed man's mind to a degree unparalleled in the history of the world and literature occupied itself with the description or discussion of this dreary ceremonial buddhism was a protest against the necessity of sacrifices and though buddhism decayed in india the sacrificial system never recovered from the attack and assumed comparatively modest proportions but in an earlier period, after the composition of the Vedic hymns and before the predominance of speculation, skill in ceremonial was regarded as the highest and indeed only science and the ancient prayers and poems of the race were arranged in three collections to suit the ritual. These were the Rig Veda, containing the metrical prayers, the Yujur Veda, in an old and new recension known as the Black and the White, containing formulaic mainly in prose to be muttered during the course of the sacrifice, and Sama Veda, a book of chants, consisting almost entirely of verses taken from the Rig Veda and arranged for singing. The Rig Veda is clearly older than the others. Its elements are anterior to the Brahmanic liturgy and are arranged in less complete surbivians to it than in the Yajur and Sama Vedas. The restriction of the words Veda and Vedic to the collection of hymns, though convenient, is not in accordance with the Indian usage, which applies the name to a much larger body of religious literature. What we call the Rig Veda is strictly speaking the mantras of the Rig Veda or the Rig Veda Sametha. Besides this, there are the Brahmanas or ceremonial treatises, the Aranyaka and the Upanishads, containing philosophy and speculation, the Sutras or aphoristic rules, all comprised in the Veda or Shruti, hearing, that is the revelation heard directly by saints, as opposed to Smriti, remembering, or tradition starting from human teachers modern hindus when not influenced by the language of european scholars apply the word veda especially to the upanishads for some time only three vedas were accepted footnote 145 thus the palipitaks speak of the tavidya or threefold knowledge of the brahmans End footnote 
But the epics and the Purans know of the fourfold Veda and the place the Atharva Veda on a level with the other three. It was the manual of two ancient priestly families, the Atharvans and the Angirasas, whose speciality was charms and prophylactics, rather than the performance of the regular sacrifices. The hymns and magic songs which it contains were probably collected subsequently to the composition of the Brahmanas, but the separate poems are older and, so far as can be judged from the language, are intermediate between the Rig Veda and the Brahmanas. But the substance of many of the spells must be older still, since the incantations prescribed show a remarkable similarity to old German, Russian and Lettish charms. The Atharva also contains speculative poems and, if it has not the freshness of the Rig Veda, is most valuable for the history of Indian thought and civilization. I will not here inquire what was the original home of the Aryans or whether the resemblances shown by Aryan languages justify us in believing that the ancestors of the Hindus, Greeks, Celts, Slavs, etc. belong to a single race and physical type. The grounds for such a belief seem to me doubtful, but a comparison of language, religion and customs make it probable that the ancestors of the Iranians and Hindus dwelt together in some region lying to the north of India and then, in descending southwards, parted company and wandered, one band westwards to Persia and the other to the Punjab and southeast. Footnote 146 or it may be that the ancestors of the Persian were also in the Punjab and retired westwards. End footnote. These latter produced the poets of the Rig Veda. Their home is indicated by the acquaintance with the Himalayas, the Kabul River, the Indus and rivers of the Punjab and the Jamna. The Ganges, though known, apparently lay beyond their sphere, but the geography of the Atharva extends as far as Benares and implies a practical knowledge of the sea, which is spoken of somewhat vaguely in the Rig Veda. It is probable that the oldest hymns were composed among the rivers of the Punjab, but the majority somewhat further to the east, in the district of Kurukshetra or Thanesar. At some period subsequent to the Aryan immigration, there was a great struggle between two branches of the same stock, related in a legendary form as the contest between the Korvas and the Parnavas. Some have thought that we have here an indication of a second invasion composed of Aryans who remained in the mountainous districts north of the Hindu Kush when the first detachment moved south and who developed their somewhat different customs. It is also possible that the Atharva Veda may represent the religious ideas of these second invaders. In several passages, the Mahabharat speaks of the Atharva as the highest Veda and represents the Pandavas as practicing polyandry, a custom which still prevails among many Himalayan tribes. The Rig Veda depicts a life not far advanced in material arts but, considering the date, humane and civilized. There were no towns but merely villages and fortified enclosures to be used as refuge in case of necessity. The general tone of the hymns is kindly and healthy. Many of them indeed have more robust piety than interest. There are few indications of barbarous customs. The general impression is of a free and joyous life in which the principal actors are chiefs and priests, though neither have become tyrannical. The composition of this anthology probably extended over several centuries and comprised a period of lively mental growth. 
It is therefore natural that it should represent stages of religious development which are not contemporaneous. But though thought is active and exuberant in these poems, they are not altogether an intellectual outburst excited by the successful advance into India. The calm of settlement as well as the fire of conquest have left their mark on them, and during the period of composition, religion grew more boldly speculative, but also more sedentary, formal, and meticulous. The earliest hymns bear traces of quasi-nomadic life, but the writers are no longer nomads. They follow agriculture as well as pasturage, but they are still contending with aborigines, still expanding and moving on. They mention no states or capitals. They revere rivers and mountains, but have no shrines to serve as religious centers, as repositories and factories of tradition. Legends and precepts have of course come down from earlier generations, but are not very definite or cogent. The stories of ancient sages and warriors are vague and wanting in individual color. Part 2 The absence of sculpture and painting explains much in the character of the Vedic deities. The hymn writers were devout and imaginative, not content to revere some undescribed being in the sky, but full of mythology, metaphor, and poetry, and continually singling out new powers for worship. Among many races, the conceptions thus evolved acquire solidity and permanence by the aid of art. An image stereotypes a deity, worshippers from other districts can see it, and it remains from generation to generation as a conservative and unifying force. Even a stone may have something of the same effect, for it connects the deity with the events, rites, and ideas of a locality. But the earliest stratum of Vedic religion is worship of the powers of nature, such as the sun, the sky, the dawn, the fire, which are personified but not localized or depicted. Their attributes do not depend at all on art, not much on local or tribal custom, but chiefly on imagination and poetry, and as this poetry was not united in one collection until a later period, a bard was under no obligation to conform to the standards of his fellows, and probably many bards sang without knowing of one another's existence. Such a figure as Agni or Fire, if one can call him a figure, illustrates the fluid and intangible character of Vedic divinities. He is one of the greatest in the pantheon, and in some ways his godhead is strongly marked. He blesses, protects, preserves and inspires. He is a divine priest and messenger between gods and men. He knows all generations. Yet we cannot give any definite account of him such as could be drawn up for a Greek deity. He is not a god of fire, like Vulcan, but the fire itself regarded as divine. The descriptions of his appearance are not really anthropomorphic, but metaphorical imagery depicting shining, streaming flames. The hymns tell us that he has a tawny beard and hair, a flaming head or three heads, three tongues or seven, four eyes or a thousand. One poem says that he faces in all directions, another that he is footless and headless. He is called the son of heaven and earth, of Vashtri and the waters, of the dawn, of Indra Vishnu. One singer says that the gods generated him to be a light for the Aryans, another that he is the father of the gods. This multiple origin becomes more definite in the theory of Agni's three births. He is born on earth from the friction of fire sticks, in the clouds as lightning, and in the highest heavens as the sun or celestial light. 
in virtue of this triple birth he assumes a triune character his heads tongues bodies and dwellings are three and this threefold nature has perhaps something to do with the triads of deities which become frequent later and finally develop into the trimurti or brahma vishnu and shiva but there is nothing fixed or dogmatic in this idea of agni's three births in other texts he is said to have two one in heaven and one on earth and yet another turn of fancy ascribes to him births innumerable because he is kindled on many hearths some of the epithets applied to him become quasi independent for instance agni veshvanara all men's fire and agni tanu napat which seems to mean son of himself or fire spontaneously generated are in a later period treated almost as separate deities Matrisvan is sometimes the name of Agni and sometimes a separate deity who brings Agni to mankind. In the same way, the Rigveda has not one but many solar deities: Mitra, Surya, Savitri, and perhaps Pushan, Bhaga, Vivasvat, and Vishnu are all loose personifications of certain functions or epithets of the sun. Deities are often thought of in classes. Thus, we have the Maruts, Rudras, and Vasus. we hear of prajapati in the singular but also of the prajapatis or creative forces not only does agni tend to be regarded as more than one he is identified with other gods we are told he is varuna and mitra savitri and indra the word varuna when born says one him thou becomest mitra when kindled in thee o son of strength are all the gods footnote 147 Rigveda verse 3 1 and footnote such identifications are common in the vedas philosophically they are an early manifestation of the mental bias which leads to pantheism metempsychosis and the feeling that all things and persons are transitory and partial aspects of the one reality but evidently the mutability of the vedic gods is also due to their nature they are bundles of epithets and functions without much personal or local center and these epithets and functions are to a large extent the same all the gods are bright and swift and helpful all love sacrifices and bestow wealth sons and cows a figure like agni enables us to understand the many-sided inconsistent presentment of shiva and vishnu in later times A richer mythology surrounds them but in the fluidity of their outline their mutability and their readiness to absorb or become all other deities they follow the old lines even a deity like ganesha who seems at first sight modern and definite illustrates these ancient characteristics he has one or five heads and from 4 to 16 arms there are half a dozen strange stories of his birth and wonderful allegories describing his adventures yet he is also identified with all the gods and declared to be the creator preserver and destroyer of the universe nay the supreme spirit itself footnote 148 see the ganesha tharvashirsha upanishad and gopinath rao hindu iconography volume 1 pages 35 to 67 end footnote in soma the sacred plant whose juice was offered in the most solemn sacrifices we again find the combination of natural phenomena and divinity with hardly any personification 
Soma is not a sacred tree inhabited by some spirit of the woods, but the Lord of Immortality, who can place his worshippers in the land of eternal life and light. Some of the finest and most spiritual of the Vedic hymns are addressed to him, and yet it is hard to say whether they are addressed to a person or a beverage. The personification is not much more than when French writers called absinthe la fieuse vieille. Later, Soma was identified with the moon, perhaps because the juice was bright and shining. On the other hand, Soma worship is connected with a very ancient but persistent form of animism, for the Vedic poets celebrate as immortal the stones under which the plant is pressed and beg them to bestow wealth and children. Just so, at the present day, agricultural and other implements receive the salutations and prayers of those who use them. They are not gods in any ordinary sense, but they are potent forces. But some Vedic deities are drawn more distinctly, particularly Indra, who having more character has also lasted longer than most of his fellows, partly because he was taken over by Buddhism and enrolled into the retinue of the Buddha. He appears to have been originally a god of thunder, a phenomenon which leads itself to anthropomorphic treatment. As an atmospheric deity, he conquers various powers of evil, particularly Vritra, the demon of drought. The Vedas know of evil spirits against whom the gods wage successful war, but they have no single personification of evil, in general, like our devil, and few malevolent deities. Of these, latter Rudra, the prototype of Shiva, is the most important, but he is not wholly malevolent, for he is the god of healing and can take away sickness as well as cause it. Indian thought is not inclined to dualism, which is perhaps the outcome of a practical mind desiring a certain course and seeing everywhere the difficulties which the evil one puts in the way of it, but rather to that pantheism which tends to subsume both good and evil under a higher unity. Indra was the tutelary deity of the invading Aryans. His principles would delight a European settler in Africa. He protects the Aryan colour and subjects the black skin. He gave land to the Aryans and made the Dasyus, aborigines, subject to them. He dispersed 50,000 of the black race and rent their citadels. Footnote 149 See Rig Veda, 3rd, 34, 9, 1st, 138, 4th, 26, 2, 6th, 18, 3, 4th, 16, 3. End footnote. Some of the events with which he is connected, such as the battles of King Sudas, may have a historical basis. He is represented as a gigantic being of enormous size and vigour, and of gross passions. He feasts on the flesh of bulls and buffaloes roasted by hundreds. His potations are counted in terms of lakes, and not only nerve him for the fray, but also intoxicate him. Footnote 150 In one singular hymn, Rigveda 10th, 119. Indra describes his sensations after drinking freely, and in the Satpatha Brahmana, 5th 549 and 12th 7 111, he seems to be represented as suffering from his excesses and having to be cured by a special ceremony. End footnote. Under the name of Saka, Indra figures largely in the Buddhist sutras and seems to have been the chief popular deity in the Buddha's lifetime. He was adopted into the new creed as a sort of archangel and heavenly defender of the faith. 
In the epics, he is still a mighty deity and the lord of paradise. Happiness in his heaven is the reward of the pious warrior after death. The Mahabharata and the Purans, influenced perhaps by Buddhism, speak of a series of Indras, each lasting for a cycle, but superseded when a new heaven and earth appear. In modern Hinduism, his name is familiar, though he does not receive much worship. Yet, in spite of his long preeminence, there is no disposition to regard him as the supreme and only God. Though the Rig Veda calls him the creator and destroyer of all things, he is not God in our sense any more than other deities are. Footnote 151. In some passages of the Upanishads, he is identified with Atma. Example, Kaushitaki Upanishad, 3rd, 8. But then all persons, whether divine or human, are really the Atma if they only knew it. End footnote. He is the personification of strength and success, but he is not sufficiently spiritual or mystical to hold and satisfy the inquiring mind. Part 3 One of the most interesting and impressive work of Vedic deities is Varun, often invoked with a more shadowy double called Mitra. No myths or exploits are related of him, but he is the omnipotent and omniscient upholder of moral and physical law. He established earth and sky. He set the sun in heaven and ordained the movements of the moon and stars. The wind is his breath and by his law the heavens and earth are kept apart. He perceives all that exists in heaven and earth or beyond, nor could a man escape him, though he fled beyond the sky. The winkings of men's eyes are all numbered by him. He knows all that man does or think. Footnote 152 Atharva Veda, 4th, 16, 2. End footnote. Sin is the infringement of his ordinances and he binds sinners in fetters. Hence they pray to him for release from sin and he is gracious to the penitent. Whereas the other deities are mainly asked to bestow material boons, the hymns addressed to Varuna contain petitions for forgiveness. He dwells in heaven in a golden mansion. His throne is great and lofty with a thousand columns, and his abode has a thousand doors. From it he looks down on the doings of men, and all seeing sun comes to his court to report. There is much in these descriptions which is unlike the attributes ascribed to any other member of the Vedic pantheon, and recalls Ahura Mazda of the Avesta or Semitic deities. No proof of foreign influence is forthcoming, but the opinion of some scholars that the figure of Varuna somehow reflects Semitic ideas is plausible. It has been suggested that he was originally a lunar deity, which explains his association with Mitra, the Persian Mitra, who was a sun god, and that the group of deities called Adityas, and including Mitra and Varuna, were the sun, moon, and the five planets known to the ancients. This resembles the Babylonian worship of the heavenly bodies and, though there is no record whatever of how such ideas reached the Aryans, it is not difficult to imagine that they may have come from Babylonia either to India or to the country where Indians and Iranians dwelt together. Footnote 153. The Indian alphabets are admittedly Semitic in origin. End footnote. There is a Semitic flavor too in the Indian legends of the churning of the ocean. Footnote 154. See Mahabhar, 1st, 17-18, and other accounts in the Ramayana and Puranas. End footnote.
The gods and asuras affect this by using a huge serpent as a rope to whirl round a mountain and from the turmoil there arise various marvellous personages and substances including the moon. This resembles in tone if not in detail the Babylonian creation myths telling of a primeval abyss of waters and a great serpent which is slain by the gods who use its body as the material for making the heavens and the earth. Footnote 155. It has also been conjectured that SK Asura is equal to Ashur, the god of Assyria, and that Sumeru or Sineru, Meru, is equal to Sumer or Shinar. See JRAS 1960, pages 364 to 365. End footnote. Yet Varuna is not the center of a monotheistic religion any more than Indra and in later times he becomes a water god of no marked importance. The Aryans and the Semites, while both dissatisfied with polytheism and seeking the one among the many, moved along different paths and did not reach exactly the same goal. Semitic deities were representations of the forces of nature in human form, but their character was stereotyped by images, at any rate in Assyria and Babylonia, and by the ritual of particular places with which they were identified. Semitic polytheism is mainly due to the number of tribes and localities possessing separate deities, not to the number of deities worshipped by each place and tribe. As villages and small towns were subordinate to great towns, so the deities of minor localities were subordinate to those of the greater. Hence the Semitic god was often thought of as a king who might be surrounded by a court and then became the head of a pantheon of inferior deities, but also might be thought of as tolerating no rivals. This latter conception, when combined with moral earnestness, gives us Genova, who resembles Varuna, except that Varuna is neither jealous nor national. Indian polytheism also originated in the personification of various phenomena. The sun, thunder, fire, rivers, and so forth. But these deities, unlike the Semitic gods, had little to do with special tribes or localities, and the philosophic Indian easily traced a connection between them. It is not difficult to see that sun, fire, and lightning have something in common. The gods are frequently thought of as joined in couples, triads, or larger companies, and early worship probably showed the beginnings of a feature which is prominent in the later ritual, namely, that a sacrifice is not an isolated oblation offered to one particular god, but a series of oblations presented to a series of deities. There was thus little disposition to exalt one god and annihilate the other but every disposition to identify the gods with one another and all of them with something else. Just as rivers, mountains and plains are dimly seen to be parts of a whole which later ages call nature, so are the gods seen to be parts of some divine whole which is greater than any of them. Even in the Rig Veda we find such sentiments as the priests speak of the one being in many ways. They call it Agni, Yama, Matariswan. Footnote 156. Rigved 1st, 164-46. End footnote. Hence, it is not surprising that when in the later Vedic period, a tendency towards monotheism, but monotheism of a pantheistic type appears, the supreme position is given to none of the old deities, but to a new figure, Prajapati. This word, meaning lord of living creatures, 
occurs in the Rig Veda as an epithet of the sun and is also occasionally used as the name of the being by whom all gods and worlds were generated and by whose power they continue to exist. In the Brahmanas and later ritual literature, he is definitely recognized as the supreme deity, the creator, the first sacrificer and the sacrifice itself. It is perhaps owing to his close connection with ceremonial that inquiring and speculative minds felt Prajapati not to be a final or satisfactory explanation of the universe. He is identified with Brahma, the active personal creator, and this later name gradually ousts the other, but he does not, any more than Indra or Varuna, become the Atma or supreme universal being of the Upanishads. The principal Vedic deities are male and the few goddesses that are mentioned such as Ushas, the dawn, seem to owe their sex to purely dramatic reasons. Greece and Rome as well as India felt it appropriate to represent the daybreak as a radiant nymph. But though in later times such goddesses as Durga assumed in some sects a paramount position and though the Veda is familiar with the idea of the world being born, there are few traces in it of a goddess corresponding to the great mother, Saibili or Astarte. In an earlier period of Vedic studies, many deities were identified with figures in the classical or Teutonic mythology chiefly on philological grounds, but most of these identifications have now been abandoned. But a few names and figures seem to be found among both the Asiatic and European Aryans and to point to a common stock of ideas. Deus, the sky god, is admittedly the same as Zeus and Jupiter. The Ashwins agree in character, though not in name, with the Dioscuri and the other parallels are quoted from Lettish mythology. Bhaga, the bountiful giver, a somewhat obscure deity, is the same word as the Slavonic Bog, used in the general sense of God, and we find Deva in Sanskrit, Deus in Latin, and Devas in Lithuanian. Ushas, the dawn, is phonetically related to Greek, Ehos, and Aurora, who, however, are only half-deities. Indra, if he cannot be scientifically identified with Thor, is a similar personage who must have grown out of the same stock of ideas. By a curious transference, the prophet Elias has, in southeastern Europe, inherited the attributes of the thunder god and is even now in the imagination of the peasantry a jovial and riotous being who, like Indra, drives a noisy chariot across the sky. The connection with ancient Persian mythology is closer. The Avastan religion was a reformation due to the genius of Zoroaster and therefore comparable with Buddhism rather than Hinduism, but the less systematic polytheism which preceded it contained much which reminds us of the Vedic hymns. It can hardly be doubted that the ancestors of the Indians and Iranians once practiced almost identical forms of religion and had even a common ritual. The chief features of the fire cult and of the Soma or Haoma sacrifice appears in both. The sacrifice is called Yajna in the Veda, Yasna in the Avesta. The Hotri priest is Zoatar, Atharvan is Atharvan, Mitra is Mitra. Vayu and Apach, the divine waters, meet us in the Avesta in almost the same forms and Indra's epithet of Vritrahan, the slayer of Vritra, appears as Vretragna. 
Ahura Mazda seems to be a development of the deity who appears as Varuna in India, though he has not the same name, and the main difference between Indian and Iranian religion lies in this, that the latter was systematized by a theistic reformer who exalted one deity above the others, whereas in India, where there was more religious vitality, polytheistic and pantheistic fancies flourished uncurbed, and the greatest reformer, the Buddha, was not a theist. One peculiarity of Indians in all ages is that they put more into religion than other races. It received most of the energy and talent which elsewhere went into art, politics and philosophy. Hence it became both intense and manifold, for deities and creeds were wanted for every stage of intelligence and variety of taste and also very tolerant, for sects in India, though multitudinous, are not so sharply divided or mutually hostile as in Europe. Connected with the general interest which religion inspired in its strongly marked speculative character. The Rig Veda asks whether in the beginning there was being or not being, and the later Vedas and Brahmanas are filled with discussions as to the meaning of ceremonies, which show that the most dreary formalism could not extinguish the innate propensity to seek for a reason. In the Upanishads, we have the same spirit dealing with more promising material and throughout the long history of Hinduism, religion and philosophy are seldom separated. We rarely find detached metaphysicians. Philosophers found new sects to support old ones. Religion absorbs philosophy and translates it into theology or myths. Part 4 To the age of the Vedas succeeds that of the Brahmans or sacrificial treatises. The two periods are distinct and have each a well-marked tone. But they pass into one another, for the Yajur and the Samaveda presuppose the ritual of the Brahmanas. These treatises introduce us to one feature of the Indian religion mentioned above, mainly the extraordinary elaboration of its ritual. To read them, one would suppose that the one occupation of all India was the offering of sacrifices. The accounts are no doubt exaggerated and must often be treated as specimens of sacerdotal imagination like the biblical descriptions of the rites performed in the tabernacle during the wanderings of the Israelites. But making all allowance for priestly enthusiasm, it still remains true that the intellect of India, so far as it is preserved in literature, was occupied during two centuries or so with the sacrificial art and that philosophy had difficulty in disentangling itself from ceremonies. One has only to compare Greek and Sanskrit literature to see how vast are the proportions assumed by the ritual in India. Our information about the political institutions, the wars, and chronology of ancient Greece is full, but of the details of Greek worship we hear little and probably there was not much to tell. But in India, where there are no histories and no dates, we know every prayer and gesture of the officiants, threw out complicated sacrifices and possess a whole library describing their correct performance. In most respects, these sacrifices which absorbed so much intellect and energy belong to ancient history. They must not be confounded with the ceremonies performed in modern temples which have a different origin and character. A great blow was struck at the sacrificial system by Buddhism. Not only did it withdraw the support of many kings and nobles, and the greater ceremonies, being very costly, depended largely on the patronage of the wealthy, but it popularized the idea that animal sacrifices are shocking and that attempts to win salvation by offerings are crude and unphilosophic. 
But though, after Buddhism had leavened India for a few centuries, we no longer find the religious world given over to sacrificing as it had been about 600 BC, these rites did not die out. Even now, they are occasionally performed in South India and the Deccan. There are still many Brahmins in these regions who, if they have not the means or learning to perform the great Vedic ceremonies, at any rate sympathize with the mental attitude which they imply, and this attitude has many curious features. The rite of sacrifice, which in the simple form of an offering supposed to be agreeable to the deity, is the principal ceremony in the early stages of most religions, persists in their later stages, but gives rise to clouds of theory and mystical interpretation. Thus in Christianity, the Jewish sacrifices are regarded as prototypes of the death of Christ, and that death itself, as a sacrifice to the Almighty, an offering of himself to himself, which in some way acts as an expiation for the sins of the world. And by a further development the sacrifice of the Mass, that is, the offering of portions of bread and wine which are held to be miraculously transformed into the body and blood of Christ by the manipulations of a qualified priest, is believed to repeat every day the tragedy of Calvary. The prevalence of this view in Europe should make us chary of stigmatizing Hindu ideas about sacrifice as mental aberrations. They represent the fancies of acute intellects dealing with ancient ceremonies which they cannot abandon but which they transform into something more congenial to their own transitional mode of thought. Though the Brahmanas and Upanishads mix up ritual with physical and metaphysical theories in the most extraordinary fashion, their main motive deserves sympathy and respect. Their weakness lies in their inability to detach themselves, as the Buddha succeeded in doing, from a ritual which, though elaborate, was neither edifying nor artistic. They seem unable to see the great problems of existence except through the mists of altar smoke. Their merit is their evident conviction that this formalism is inadequate. Their wish is not to distort and cramp nature by bringing it within the limits of the ritual, but to enlarge and expand the ritual until it becomes cosmic. If they regard the whole universe as one long act of prayer and sacrifice, the idea is grandiose rather than pedantic, though the details may not always be to our taste. Footnote 157 For instance, Chapter 3 of the Chandogya Upanishad, which compares the solar system to a beehive in which the bees are Vedic hymns, is little less than stupendous, though singular and hard for European thought to follow. End footnote we are told that the gods obtained immortality and heaven by sacrifice, that they created the universe by sacrifice, that Prajapati, the creator, is the sacrifice. Although some writers are disposed to distinguish magic sharply from religion, the two are not separated in the Vedas. Sacrifice is not merely a means of pleasing the gods. It is a system of authorized magic or sacred science controlling all worlds, if properly understood. It is a mysterious cosmic force like electricity which can be utilized by a properly trained priest but is dangerous in unskillful hands, for the rites, if wrongly performed, bring disaster or even death on bunglers. Though the Vedic sacrifices fell more and more out of general use, this notion of the power of rites and formulae did not fade with them but has deeply infected modern Hinduism and even Buddhism, in both of which the lore of spells and gestures assume monstrous proportions. 
The Vedic and modern tantric rituals are different, but they are based on the same supposition that the universe, including the gods which are part of it, is regulated by some permeating principle, and that this principle can be apprehended by sacred science and controlled by the use of proper methods. Footnote 159 Thus both the Vedas and the Tantras devote considerable space to rites which have for object the formation of a new body for the sacrificer. Compare, for instance, the Atreya Brahmana, 1st, 18-21, 2nd, 35-38, 3rd, 2nd, and 6th, 27-31, with Avalon's account of Nyasa in his introduction to the Mahanirvana Tantra, pages 107-111. End footnote. So far as these systems express the idea that the human mind can grasp the universe by knowledge, they offer an example of the bold sweep of the Hindu intellect, but the methods prescribed are often fatuous. The belief in the potency of words and formulae, though amplified and embellished by the Hindus, is not an Indian invention but a common aspect of early thought which was less emphasized in other countries. It is found in Persia and among the tribes of Central and Northern Asia and of Northern Europe and attained a high development in Finland where renaut or magical songs are credited with very practical efficacy. Thus, the Kalevala relates how Vainamoinen was building a boat by means of songs when the process came to a sudden stop because he had forgotten three words. This is exactly the sort of thing that might happen in the legends of a Vedic sacrifice if the priest had forgotten the text he ought to recite. The external features of Vedic rites are remarkable and unlike what we know of those performed by other nations of antiquity. The sacrifice is not, as a rule, a gift presented to a single god to win his favor. Oblations are made to most members of the pantheon in the course of a prolonged ceremony, but the time, manner and recipients of these oblations are fixed rather by the mysteries of sacrificial science than by the sacrificer's need to propitiate a particular deity. Also, the sacrifice is not offered in a temple and it would appear that in pre-Buddhist times there were no religious edifices. It is not even associated with sacred spots such as groves or fountains haunted by a deity. The scene of operations requires long and careful preparation, but it is merely an enclosure with certain sheds, fireplaces and mounds. It has no architectural pretensions and is not a centre round which shrines can grow for it requires re-consecration for each ceremony and in many cases must not be used twice. There is little that is national, tribal or communal about these rites. Some of them, such as the Ashwamedha, or horse sacrifice and the rajasaya or consecration of a king may be attended by games and sports but that is because they are connected with secular events in their essence sacrifices are not popular festivals or holidays but private services performed for the benefit of the sacrificer that is the person who pays the fees of the priests Usually they have a definite object and, though ceremonies for the attainment of material blessings are not wanting, this object is most frequently supermundane, such as the fabrication of a body in the heavenly world. It is in keeping with these characteristics that there should be no pomp or spectacular effect. The rites resemble some complicated culinary operation or scientific experiment and the sacrificial enclosure has the appearance of a laboratory rather than a place of worship. 
Vedic rituals includes the sacrifice of animals and there are indications of the former prevalence of human sacrifice. At the time when the Brahmanas were composed, the human victims were released alive, but afterwards the practice of real sacrifice was revived, probably owing to the continual incorporation into the Hindu community of semi-barbarous tribes and their savage deities. Human victims were offered to Mahadevi, the spouse of Shiva, until the last century and would doubtless be offered now were legal restrictions removed. But though the sporadic survival of an old custom in its most primitive and barbarous form is characteristic of Hinduism, the whole tendency of thought and practice since the rise of Buddhism has been adverse to religious bloodshed even of animals. The doctrine of substitution and atonement of offering the victim on behalf of the sacrificer, though not absent, plays a smaller part than in the religions of Western Asia. Evidently, it was not congenial the Hindu has always been inclined to think that the individual earns his future in another world by his own thoughts and acts. Even the value of the victim is less important than the correct performance of the ceremony. The teaching of the Brahmanas is not so much that a good heart is better than lavish arms as that the ritually correct sacrifice of a cake is better than a hecatomb not offered according to rule. The offerings required by the Vedic ritual are very varied. The simplest are cakes and libations of melted butter poured on the fire from two wooden spoons held one over the other while Vedic verses are recited. Besides these, there was the animal sacrifice and still more important the Soma sacrifice. Footnote 160 There is considerable doubt as to what was the plant originally known as Soma. That described in the Vedas and Brahmanas is said to grow on the mountains and to have a yellow juice of a strong smell, fairy taste and intoxicating properties. The plants used as haum, hum, by the modern Parsis of Yezd and Kerman are said to be members of the family Asclepidaceae, perhaps of the genus Sarcostemma, with fleshy stalks and milky juice and the soma tested by Dr. Hogg at Pune was probably made from another species of the same or an allied genus. He found it extremely nasty, though it had some intoxicating effect. See his Aitreya Bradmana, number page 489. End footnote. This ceremony is very ancient and goes back to the time when the Hindus and Iranians were not divided. In India, the sacrifice lasted at least five days and, even in its simpler forms, was far more complicated than any ceremony known to the Greeks, Romans or Jews. Only professional priests could perform it and as a rule a priest did not attempt to master more than one branch and to be for instance either a reciter, hotri or singer, udgatri. But the five-day sacrifices are little more than the rudiments of the sacrificial art and led on to the ahinas or sacrifices comprising from two to twelve days of soma pressing which last not more than a month. The ahinas again can be combined into sacrificial sessions lasting a year or more and it would seem that rites of this length were really performed though when we read of such sessions extending over a hundred years we may hope that they are creations of a fancy like that of a hymn writer who celebrated the state where congregations ne'er break up and sabbaths never end footnote 161 an ordinary sacrifice was offered for a private person who had to be initiated and the priests were merely officiants acting on his behalf. In a satra, 
the priests were regarded as the sacrifices and were initiated. It had some analogy to Buddhist and Christian monastic foundations for reading sutras and saying masses. End footnote. The ritual literature of India is enormous and much of it has been edited and translated by European scholars with the care that is merited a better object. It is a mine of information respecting curious beliefs and practices of considerable historical interest, but it does not represent the main current of religious ideas in post-Buddhist times. The Brahmans indeed never cease to give the sacrificial system their theoretical and, when possible, their practical approval, for it embodies a principle most dear to them, namely, that the other castes can obtain success in heaven only under the guidance of Brahmans and by rites which only Brahmans can perform. But for this very reason it incurred the hostility not only of philosophers and morally earnest men, but of the military caste, and it never really recovered from the blow dealt it by Buddhism, the religion of that caste. But with every Brahmanic revival it came to the front and the performance of the Ashwamed or horse sacrifice was long the culminating glory of an orthodox king. Footnote 162 the political importance of the Ashwamedh lay in the fact that the victim had to be let loose to roam freely for a year, so that only a king whose territories were sufficiently extensive to allow of its being followed and guarded during its wanderings could hope to sacrifice it at the end. End footnote. End of section 30.